Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. When you purchase a computer... A computer comes with certain programs that are hard written in. They're often called operating systems. And you can't do very much about them. I mean, you can upgrade them, but your computer comes with it. When you turn it on, you don't add anything to get the operating system. It's already there. And then you, depending upon how you live, what you do for a job, what your needs are, you add a lot of programs onto the computer. We could think of the operating system that comes shipped with the computer as the core attributes, innate attributes that have been programmed into us over the course of natural selection. These attributes, besides the physiological processes that we need to attain homeostasis, there are core emotions which are found to a degree universally, cross-cultures. Basic emotions of grief or sadness, anger, fear, shock, disgust, joy. And then there are also additional socializing emotions that are pretty universal, such as shame and pride. So those are what we find in our operating system. (laughs) They've been, uh, over the course of natural selection, There are dedicated circuits in our brains that uh, create feelings of pride when we do things that benefit a community. There are feelings of shame that come about when we do things that uh, prioritize ourselves over the welfare of others. Um, This is, of, of course, assuming we're not sociopaths. And then there, on the other hand, all these other programs that we add on to our computers... And some of these applications are not that healthy. You probably know that sometimes people download things that uh, compromise their computer or applications that don't really work that well, work for a short time, but then create a lot of problems. These are things like our defense uh, uh, strategies, our adaptive Uh, inclinations and maladaptive coping strategies and so forth. And one of the problems is is that by the time we're adults, it's very difficult to tell the difference between what is innately a part of me that um, I have to cherish and I cannot overrule and I have to get in touch with versus what are the behaviors and tendencies and inclinations that I have picked up in the course of my life to defend myself against emotional wounds, but these strategies I've developed are not healthy for me in the long term. And I'll talk about the difference between the two. All of our innate processes that are psychological uh, essentially revolve around the ability for us to connect both interpersonally and socially, to bond and to socialize. 
the human species survival directly depends upon our ability to to bond and to connect uh, we are not a species that's born and then pretty quickly after birth learns to fly or learns to hunt for food or learns to uh, essentially take care of ourselves. We are entirely dependent on others for the vast, for many, many years before we can even pretend to become self-reliant. And nobody ever really achieves self-reliant in the sense that all human beings throughout the course of their entire life require others for emotion co-regulation. If you want to drive somebody nuts, drop them in solitary confinement. For last study I read said after three days, people start to show the signs, early signs of psychosis. So we are a species that to survive, to be healthy, requires ongoing, resonant, robust connections. And that's what all of our emotions are set up for and our core drive is to attach. So there's nothing we can do about that. And if you look at our emotions, the ones that I listed, um, all of them are about guiding us through the complexities of socialization and maintaining relationships. We have anger to tell us to push back against injustice and aggression. We have emotions of fear to tell us to gain distance from uh, individuals or gatherings that are not safe. We have feelings of disgust to ward us to stay away from people whose uh, states of being or actions are extremely detrimental. We have feelings of uh, joy that encourage us not only to bond and to open up about our emotional states, but allow us to be creative. And all of these emotions are set up to guide us through the complexities of the social uh, realm. If you, We have been a species for 200,000 years, but the first 160,000 years was without language. And yet we kept going and surviving and multiplying and developed. So for 160,000 years, human beings interacted with each other, bonded, uh, formed even vital collectives, nomads that would take care of each other. And they would do this primarily through the, the processing expression of emotional states. Emotions have been fine-tuned by the bulk of not only our species history, but the entirety of evolution that led up to our species. Emotions are primary states of being that guide us how to interact in the world. They are extremely fast. They're largely processed in uh, literally two-tenths of a second. You have an emotional response to any stimuli. Your right hemisphere is largely... Uh, the hemisphere that is behind the bulk of emotions. Only, interestingly enough, anger has some elements in the left hemisphere. The right hemisphere works using uh, parallel processing by which it crunches vast amounts of sensory data, stimuli, looking at people's facial expressions, their body language, how they talk, how they look at you, whether they're making eye contact or not, what distance you are from them. All these different things are being crunched and then 
it comes up with a, an emotional state, trust or guardedness, fear or anger. And that's, guard, that's guiding you on how to interact. Um, nothing you can do about your emotions. Sometimes our emotions can be a little outdated. One emotion we have that's been uh, set up uh, by natural selection that no longer pays dividends is, uh, or feelings, I should say, that no longer pays dividends is uh, we care too much about what other people think about us. Uh, as I've noted that um, given that we spent the vast bulk of our history in hunter-gatherer collectives of about 8 to 12 other adults, that's all you would have to deal with in your life, those 8 to 12 other people. You relied on them. You had to worry what Joe thought about you because if Joe didn't like you, now there's only 11 people <laughs> that are going to share their resources. And if Joe convinces uh, Moisha and uh, Haim, I, I want to give them Jewish names in honor of my... Um, so Moisha, Haim, and Joe... Uh, <laughs> Don't, uh, don't like you. Now you've taken a significant hit to your likelihood of survival. The, as some evolutionary psychologists note, it was the most popular that survived and passed on their genes. And the most popular were not the ones who were actually the strongest. That's a myth. They weren't the ones who could run the fastest. They weren't the best looking. So, you know, John Hamm or whatever would not necessarily have passed on his, uh, his seed, his genes to the next generation. The people who were the most popular were the ones who took altruistic pro-tribal actions. And that's why we have circuits in our brain from the moment we're born that babies have actually very refined moral senses. There's actually puppet shows you can show to babies and thank God I've never had to see these things because I can't imagine a worse thing than a puppet show with a room full of babies, right? <laughs> Sounds like a nightmare. But I can use the research, and in the research, if you do this puppet show where one puppet starts stealing the cookies, then the babies will get angry. <laughs> and if you show a puppet that gives the cookies, the babies will literally clap and express joy. So thankfully our narrative skills develop over time, but uh, we see anyway the, uh, the for the, that the formation of justice and fairness and uh, moral equity starts very, very young. So all of the emotions are ingrained, they're in our operating system, uh, very little you can do about it. Uh, if you've been emotionally wounded by an attachment figure, somebody you've been dating for a while that you become attached to and suddenly they stop showing up or you, I guess the term is ghosted. Um, I think if somebody in the back can push the buzzer, thank you. Um, uh, so you'll feel sad. Uh, now the problem is not the emotions. The Buddha actually put the emotions under the what you could say the first noble truth of these things are going to happen. The Buddha said, in life, you're going to have uh, old age sickness, death, separation from people you love, and you're going to have sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair. Right? Nothing you can do about it. You're going to have your fucking emotions. 
okay. But the problem is, the second noble truth, as the Buddha said, it's the way we try to defend ourselves against our emotions, the way we try to repress our emotions, the way we try to push away things like old age, sickness, the way we try to essentially turn away from the inevitables, uh, cause addictions, cause what the Buddha called craving, cause impulses, cause maladaptive coping strategies. Um, and these strategies start very young. If we are lucky enough to be born in a secure uh caretaking environment where we expect and get uh, attention that's reliable, predictable, where the child can see a pattern of every night I get uh, attention and care and interest and appreciation, then that child doesn't have its attachment system always switched on and then its secondary system of exploring the world, that's a secondary core drive, then gets switched on. The child will, in playgrounds, go out and play with other kids. But if the child doesn't get reliable caregiving, that child will then become, if it only gets it sometimes, the child becomes anxious, and hovers around the caregiver, stares into people's faces to try to predict if they'll stay attached or not, will become fixated on one relationship rather than exploring the world, will become anxious, and will develop all these strategies to protect itself from being abandoned. Because early in its life, it has learned that abandonment can happen anytime. So we develop all these strategies of uh, monitoring, uh, vigilantly thinking, paying attention, checking phones, uh, looking at people's Facebook, what are they up to now, you know, all these defensive strategies to try to protect ourselves from being abandoned. There, there becomes this constant um, monitoring, uh, did she or he call back yet? And all these um, strategies to protect ourselves from being re-abandoned, these create the suffering that's entirely not necessary, can be removed, is not inherent or innate in the human condition, and creates the bulk of our mental agitation and distress. The abandonment itself, the grief that we would feel after not getting love predictably, is one thing, but the suffering associated with the constant mental distress of hypervigilance, monitoring, uh, worrying, trying to figure out how the, the abandonment will happen, what we can do to solidify, trying to figure out uh, what the other is thinking. All of that is where the bulk of the suffering comes from, and none of that is innate. The third type of child is the child that grows up where Intimacy and attunement and appreciation is almost, is so not present that the child gives up on love, gives up on connection, it switches off its, its drive to attach, and it therefore, because it switches off its core drive to attach, that child will switch off all of the emotions associated with disappointment. 
It creates an avoidant or dismissive child that learns to rely on self-reliance, addictions, and other strategies as a way to not feel emotional pain, loss, grief, because it reminds the child of all the love it didn't get, all the disappointments of childhood. So the child becomes exceptionally good at repressing emotions, switching them off. These are the people who take exceptional pride in how logical they are. They tend to skew in terms of gender men. Uh, it tends to be individuals who, whenever they feel any inconvenient emotion, they reach for a beer, uh, a beverage, they go online, they start gaming, they do anything that essentially represses the emotion. The anxious person, their addiction is to the, the main attachment in their life and trying to make sure the main attachment in their life doesn't go away. And there's feelings of jealousy and feelings of a great deal of um, uh, anxiety, anxiety disorders associated with all the defensive, stra defensive strategies. The child that's been abused who's disorganized will show a variety of patterns associated with dissociation, emotionally shutting down, uh, disconnecting from uh, exogenous um, exteroceptive sense stimuli, so the child will literally disconnect from its body and the world around it and get lost in fantasy as a way to survive. Uh, these children develop an innate desire for, like avoidance, self-numbing, but they also have a really chaotic response. When someone offers them love and safety, they run. When somebody offers them abuse, they gravitate because it reminds them of the abusive events of their childhood, which define what love is for them. So these impulses are triggered entirely by feelings of vulnerability. All of our defensive strategies are secondary, we could call them secondary emotions, our adaptive, maladaptive coping strategies uh, start out, their etiology begins as responses to feelings of vulnerability, emotional pain, disconnection, abandonment, rejection. So some people shut down their emotions, some people disconnect from their body, some people uh, cling uh, anxiously as a response to feelings of vulnerability. And um, in the, these cases, they begin to be so, these behaviors become so fast and so quick that uh, there no longer even seems to be a choice. It doesn't, it's just as, as automatic as our core emotions. It's just as fast. Somebody comes home, they feel lonely, there's nobody there, the loneliness they don't want to feel, um, understandably, so they've over time, they've wired the brain to literally, in the, the presence of loneliness, to get food because eating creates the felt sense of being taken care of and connected to others. Or they might immediately turn on Netflix. 
or they might immediately smoke pot, or they might immediately go on Facebook or social media to create the feeling of being connected, or they might immediately go on Tinder. But all of those actions become essentially so deeply ingrained, they have dedicated circuits to them, that they feel as fast and as natural and as uh, inevitable and as impossible to control as our core emotions, our sadness, our loneliness, our fear. They arise in two-tenths of a second. They can sometimes happen before thought. I've known many, many, many people in recovery. I've been sober for 24 years, and you hear so many stories of people who put themselves in uh, situations of isolation, and over time the isolation creates negative emotions, which are inevitable, feelings of pain. Uh, when you're isolated, the DACC, a core part of the brain, socializing part of the brain, reduces opiates, your body feels more painful, your brain stops producing dopamine. So in isolation, people start feeling worse and worse and worse, and the next thing they know is they drink. It feels automatic, there was no choice. They found themselves suddenly in the bar or at the bodega buying a six pack because they uh, essentially started out a process that led to a situation where they would have no choice. So um, we see this not only in addictions, we see it in people who over time have trained themselves to chase after love, people who've been, who've grown up in anxious, unreliable uh, relationships with caregivers, with siblings, with adults. In their adult life, they develop the behavioral pattern of they'll meet someone, and especially if that someone is not really available for intimacy, is only partially available, they will chase. They've trained themselves to chase after love, to feed on breadcrumbs, that it, it deeply triggers these learned uh, behaviors that are started out adaptive in childhood, but then become maladaptive in adult life. They become very, very sticky and hard to switch off. In my own life, I grew up with an alcoholic father. Luckily, my mother had a, I had a very a significantly secure, secure enough relationship with her. But with my father, he was a violent drunk who was not above beating up uh, my mother in front of me by being physical with me. He created like, and he made it even worse because sometimes he was a completely charming, affable, funny, loving guy who, though when he drank, uh, had a Jekyll and Hyde type of psychological transition. So when my father would do something extremely impulsive uh, where he would deflect anger from his work onto me and he would uh, come into my room and start screaming, breaking stuff around me, tossing me uh, out of bed, the next day he would... Uh, inevitably do a half-hearted attempt at apologizing, which was never really an apology. It was always like, you know, I'm under a lot of stress, you know, I didn't mean it. 
And I learned very quickly that those times when he was apologizing were the most vulnerable times for me in my relationship with him. Because if I didn't immediately say, it's okay, he could be triggered again to become violent or resentful or become aggressive. So I was trained to, uh, in that situation, essentially inauthentically, despite how I felt, um, I would say it's okay just to make it go away, make the apology go away so that we could move on. Because if I didn't say it was okay, he might, I didn't know what would happen. So it was a defensive strategy. And then as an adult, when, you know, peers, colleagues, friends would do something that's fucked up, if they would come to me and start to apologize, I'd go, oh, it's like, yeah, it's okay. Never mind. It's okay. There's nobody who reaches into our brains after childhood and goes, okay, well, that strategy, that helped, but now you're 18, you'll never need to use this again. We're going to switch off that circuit. It doesn't happen. It just stays in place until we understand the emotional beliefs underneath it and we disconfirm it through what's known as a memory reconsolidation or we experience so much pain in association with these impulses that finally one day we have to realize, you know what, the fact that I eat every time I feel lonely is now making me really even more miserable than the loneliness. So I have to come up with another strategy. Or the fact that every time I feel disconnected and powerless in my life, I shop, now I'm completely in debt, and now I'm really suffering, I have to try a new strategy. It's only when the suffering, the dukkha, as the Buddha said, becomes so great that we, the, the Buddha said dukkha, unfortunately, is the underlying ground that creates the willingness and the emotional possibility that will switch. You can put this another way, nobody ever comes into AA on a winning streak and nobody ever comes here on a winning streak either. Literally, if you look into people's life, most of the time, I mean, I'm sure there's three of you in this room that was, oh, that sounds interesting, a punk guy with tattoos and I hear it's kind of interesting, but the most of us come in because there's something that's making us fucking unhappy in our life and we want to find some way, some strategies of uh, addressing it. It's the dukkha, as they say, pain being the touchstone of growth. It's the dukkha, the suffering, that creates the possibility of change. I was talking, another example, I was talking with a wonderful uh, uh, person that I do, I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one work, uh, that's the bulk of what I do, and I was talking with someone, and uh, she said that she went on a date with a guy, and he took her out, to for like a second date it was a needlessly expensive restaurant like too much too expensive and she knew like that that would probably create some kind of underlying expectation but she uh, she overrid that impulse to say let's do something more casual so she goes there and now the guy's all anxious and he's trying to make her feel impressed and she's the more anxious he is, the less she's feeling that uh, inclined to continue. It, you know, he's uh, trying to push the relationship much faster 
then she she's ready and or even you know she's not yet had any enough experience to start saying okay we're dating exclusively now uh, you know and then at the end he says I've got the best night planned for us tomorrow <laughs> and in her body her core emotion her innate drive was to say uh, to get away it was a feeling of discomfort say no uh, this is too fast. Uh, I don't want to. But what came out of her mouth was, okay, where are we going? That's a learned behavior. That's the result of growing up in a childhood where you don't get secure um, sense of care and uh, attention from a core caregiver. It creates a learned tendency to say yes or not state your needs or not set boundaries because there's this felt expectation of I have to make this one work I have to make sure this and if I and also a fear of conflict as well because if you grew up where love is unreliable uh, conflict is extremely frightening and must be avoided at all costs so um, To summarize, uh, core feelings are, both core feelings and impulses are fast. But core emotions have no verbal component to them. They existed for tens of thousands of years before uh, adaptive or maladaptive coping strategies and behavioral complexes developed. So there's no verbal component to them. A coping or a maladaptive coping strategy in tonight's uh, case has a very strong verbal component. It comes with its own justifications. It's uh, very often assigned a lot of uh, justification from the superego. Oh, I should do this. I don't want to make this person unhappy. And there's literally language things to it okay yeah I guess so sure if everybody else is doing it it's essentially ingrained as part of our socializing period gut feelings are almost in, are very very frequently socially inconvenient nobody wants to feel fear before they speak in public it just is part of though a core emotion if you've experienced some abandonment the fear of going in front of people who are evaluating you will by and large trigger a sense of fear. If uh, you experience uh, anger after you are confronted with great social injustice or unfairness, there's nothing you can do about it. It's inevitable. It might be inconvenient though at your job. You might work at a job where people don't talk about the unfairness and the work hierarchy or the way the boss treats people. And so you'll want to repress the anger. And when that ha we do repress the anger, then the defense becomes repressive and then we deflect the anger onto people completely innocent, people who repress their anger when they are confronted with injustice or unfairness at work will then go and pick a fight when they get cut off in traffic or will beat up their children or their dog or their neighbor or whatever. 
Um, unacknowledged emotions and gut feelings, if you don't acknowledge them, they will create anxiety when you start to feel them again. If you start to repress your loneliness by uh, going on Tinder, eventually, no matter how many times you hook up with someone or one would hook up with someone, eventually the loneliness, the core loneliness will start to rise up and as it becomes, it starts to return, that's when we start to feel anxiety. Anxiety is a defensive response to a repressed emotion or a repressed memory. On the other hand, when an impulse, a maladaptive coping strategy has been repressed, you will feel guilt because guilt very often is a social emotion that can be hijacked by family systems. So if you're if your parents have become over-reliant on you and they continually ask you to do something and you finally say, I can't this weekend, even though uh, that's a healthy response to override your, your innate, you're not, you're not your innate, your learned uh, behavior that you have to do everything they ask, if you finally say no, you'll start to feel guilt. Doesn't mean Guilt is not always a sign that you've done something wrong. In fact, many times people feel guilt over their sexuality or prioritizing themselves or setting boundaries. So much of my work involves teaching people how to set boundaries. And the first thing they say when they set entirely human boundaries like, I can't go into work this weekend. I can't go over to your house if it's their ex-boyfriend who wants them to come and, you know, console them because they've just gone through a breakup with someone else and they say no, they'll feel guilt because that's been, that's been over time ingrained through life experiences. The Buddha said that the first, the gut feeling is called Vedana and that is inevitable and our job is simply to observe Vedana, observe core feelings and emotions as they arise, note them, but don't interfere with them. Just allow them to rise and pass. Feel them. The most important thing emotions need is not necessarily to be acted out, but to be felt and to be expressed to other people. That's what we need to do for them. Sometimes emotions need to be acted out. If you're confronted with enough injustice in your life, racism, sexism, ableism, you name it, all across the board, then we need to take an action. We need to feel the anger and translate it into action. On the other hand, felt inclinations uh, that are instilled through defensive strategies so that we don't have to feel our emotional pain, the Buddha said, we don't observe them, we take action. We don't just simply watch them. We do things like avoid situations that trigger us needlessly. That doesn't mean any situation. Don't avoid situations that cause emotions. Avoid situations that trigger maladaptive coping strategies. So, for instance, don't avoid uh, giving a talk in public simply because it triggers an emotion of fear. That's okay. That's exposure therapy. You'll get through it. But avoid a situation that makes you drink. 
you know, recklessly or makes you so lonely and isolated that you find yourself addictively going on social media. Those situations we can avoid. We can make sure that we don't stand extended periods alone. We can go out to communities. We can go out and connect with friends. It's important to avoid situations that trigger our cope, our maladaptive coping strategies, but not situ, but not avoid our feelings. Okay. Again, our feelings are felt states. Our coping strategies are behaviors that are meant to make pain go away. They have a verbal component. They are learned. You didn't always have them. There was a point in your life where you did not addictively use Facebook, or I say you, you know, I'm, I just mean one, didn't addictively use Facebook. There was a time before we addictively used Tinder or uh, ate compulsively or drank compulsively or shopped compulsively, etc., or constantly checked in on our exes, etc. You can know then, if you ask yourself, is this impulse something that I've always had or is it something that I learned as a way to protect myself from sadness, loneliness, fear, anger? And if it was, then one, avoid situations that trigger it, learn how to, to tolerate the discomfort, the feelings that trigger it, learn how to feel lonely rather than need to eat, shop, etc. Develop self-soothing capabilities. And finally, um, the most important thing to alleviate maladaptive coping strategies in life, addictions that have turned into process behaviors, is to cultivate a sense of resilience and security in our life. All of our maladaptive coping strategies are triggered by vulnerability feeling vulnerable. People who are not vulnerable, who feel confident or feel a sense of resilience, a, a sense of self-worth, a sense of um, connectedness, they'll still feel lonely at times. They'll still feel sad. They'll still have anger because those are natural emotions that happen in everyone. But people who feel a sense of connection, a sense of secure attachment. Do not drink compulsively, shop compulsively, eat compulsively. How do I know this? I've actually read the longitudinal studies of attachment styles. And when you look at people who have been graded as secure, and then you, look, you follow them into their adult lives, they do not fall into the categories of common personality disorders, addictions, compulsions, etc. The key is feeling a sense of security and resilience. And so tonight, uh, we're going to be developing that in our meditation. I'm going to be leading a meditation that is specifically meant to cultivate a sense of uh, resilience so that when we start to feel an impulse or an urge, we can do this practice and it will alleviate the underlying uh, drive to continue the act. I note that vulnerability is the tendency to overestimate threats, especially overestimate the pain that an emotion will be, 
if we experience it. And there's a ten and vulnerability is the tendency to underestimate the amount of resources and people that care about us and opportunities we have for love in the world. So part of feeling secure is learning to reorient the brain or the, I should say reorient our attention away from all the experiences of pain and abandonment and loneliness and reorient ourselves towards feelings of connection and feelings of um, being bonded and being apart and being of having uh, resources. So that's what our meditation is going to be. Thank you for listening to the talk. I hope there was something worth listening to in it. And now we're going to practice. So find a really comfortable seated position, closing the eyes, and try to put aside any idea that you have of what a meditator should look like, and just all the effort just to go in one simple maneuver, which is tilt your head slightly up, lifting your chin up, tilting the back of your head down, so that it's like you're looking at a tall building, just enough that there won't be any tendency to slouch, and just relax your body. So the little bit of effort you put in is just keeping your head upright. But relax everything from the neck down. So relax the muscles in the neck. Relax the shoulders. We'll do some breaths together. Like you're doing a pranayama breath in yoga. We'll do... Hold the breath in and this time expand the belly as you breathe in and then as you breathe out, push any tension, any stress literally up the body and just release it, just releasing any tension in the belly. So you're, when you release the breath, it's not actually pushing, it's just letting go, I should say, just letting go of any tension in the belly. Breathe in, expanding the chest. And then when you breathe out and the chest relaxes, imagine any tension, contraction, tightness in your chest is now being released from the mouth or the nose. Breathing into the eyes and then as you breathe out, imagine that all of the micro-muscles around the eyes are settling. And breathing into the eyes again, and then as you breathe out, just settle the eyeballs in the eye sockets like you're putting them to bed, encouraging them to relax. Breathing into the forehead, and then as you breathe out, soften, release any muscles there. Breathing into the back of the head. And then as you breathe out, releasing 
Any tightness there. Breathing into the lower back or the upper if you have any pain. Just breathing into that area or discomfort and then breathing out, releasing any tightness. With each in-breath, become aware of a part of the body. And then as with each exhalation, release. And just imagine like the breath, the out-breath is taking any stress with it. Breathing at a very nice, slow, long, full, relaxing pace. And then orienting ourselves to the sensations that surround us, the sound of the air conditioner, the lights flickering behind closed eyelids, the feeling of sitting on a cushion. The breath, all of the actual sensations that are occurring right now, if we didn't have a single thought in our mind, if we didn't have any thing in the mind other than awareness of the actual sensations, the quality of being at a place you've longed to arrive at, your favorite destination, your favorite place, a time in your life where you give yourself permission to totally let go of the momentum and come to a complete standstill without any thought or inclination about what to do next or what's happened previously. Those few times in our life where we truly arrive beginning of a vacation where we give ourselves permission to live as slowly and as and to embrace life exactly as it is without carrying any sense that there's something missing from this time because there isn't there's nothing missing from this moment at all There's nothing missing from you, from me, from anyone else here. This moment is complete and it has everything we need to feel safe and relax. And even if the mind is jumpy or tired, <coughs> or anxious, that's okay. That's part of this experience too.
So the only thing we are going to do is just stay present in this moment in our life without adding anything, breathing comfortably. When we just pay attention to the world as it appears and the breath and the body and the feelings. It creates a very pleasant task positive state of mind eventually. The only thing we have to stand on guard against is our heads slouching and being captivated by thoughts. If thoughts arise, that's all right. Nothing wrong with thoughts seeking our attention, but our job is to not climb inside these thoughts. The moment we click on them, as it were, they open up their applications, their programs, and they create virtual realities that completely wipe away the presence, wipe away the peace, the ease, and they replace with thoughts that become inherently stressful over time. So if that happens, if you do find your mind becomes kidnapped by a thought and the next thing you know you're you've climbed inside of it. No worries, just relax back into the present, the sensations around you. Feel good. There's no room for frustration or self-criticism at all. So long as you're meditating, trying to relax and just stay present, that's so beneficial even during the times when the mind slips off. Just training ourselves to relate to our experience with kindness and patience. These are healthy behavioral patterns.
So at this point I'd like you to bring to mind someone that you care about that if they called seeking your attention or help or reached out you would take the time and the effort to help them just hold an image of their face in your mind and just have them look at you in a way that acknowledges this relationship the sense of connection Let them fade gently and then bring to mind someone that you would call up if you felt overwhelmed or disappointed, if you'd been through a hard experience, someone that you would seek to connect with and just create the sense in the mind of that this person would return to you the attention and care that you would offer someone else that you cared about. letting them go. Now visualize some example of self-care in your life. Anything from yoga to exercise to sobriety. Something that shows, displays your capability of taking the growth choice in life, the secure choice.
And now a little more challenging. Bring to mind a time in your life where you felt pessimistic, powerless, overwhelmed. This should be a time from a younger period in your life, an older period. Just don't overthink it. Just visualize any period in your life where you felt a sense of pessimism, overwhelm, despondency. And just visualize how you must have, or you might have looked then. And then what would you tell this younger version of yourself? This fragile, vulnerable, overwhelmed. What is this part of yourself that still holds that fear need to know? What resources do you have now? What skills? What have you learned? And now visualize yourself today. And tell yourself what you often need to hear but fail to remember when you feel overwhelmed vulnerable what is it that you forget what is the thing we forget when we're desperate vulnerable overwhelmed So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl. And just decide what you'd like to bring with you from this meditation in the rest into the rest of the evening. <clears throat> 